Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 32. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at RedPoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and anti-counterfeiting from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today. And please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with John Merles, Head of Risk and Operations at Lilly Bank. John was sure he wanted a career in law enforcement as a young man. However, he has thoroughly enjoyed the path he chose to becoming an expert in the field of risk management and loss prevention. With years of experience and expertise in this critical area, John has successfully guided numerous companies in mitigating risk and safeguarding assets. Throughout this podcast, we will dive deep into the world of emerging technologies and how these have impacted the banking industries throughout the years. We will also tap into John's extensive knowledge and uncover practical insights and actionable advice for our listeners. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, John Merles. John, thank you for joining us this morning. We're thrilled to have you. We'd love to learn about some of the interesting work that you do in order to protect your brand and your your business. We're thrilled to have you. It's uh, great to be here. Obviously, we're super partners with with RedPoints and certainly leverage RedPoints as part of our broader risk and compliance and brand reputation initiatives. Thank you. And I think to sort of get us in the right mindset, I thought I'd ask you, if you could be a fly on the wall, where would you want to land and listen to the conversation? Professionally or personally? Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think, you know, one of my items that I really like to get, you know, accomplished, one of my so-called uh, bucket items is a visit to the White House. And without taking any political position, it would certainly be exciting to listen to some of the, what interests me is the national security conversations that go on in the White House. I, I think back to the capture of Osama bin Laden and how we all can remember the president and the vice president, the cabinet sitting in that small room watching that happen and unfold in, in real time. So being able to listen to that type of activity would be fantastic. That would be crazy. Is there a personal one you'd like to listen to? I think personally, I, I think Barack Obama, I think would be a, a great person that I, I would love to be a fly on the wall and, and, and hear what he has to say. Awesome. And when you think about your career, John, which spans you know just a few years, you're a young man. That may have to be edited, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Is there a particular funny story that you you know, from one of your experiences, could be current there, could, it could be your current job, could be, you know, years gone by, but is there one, when you're having a beer with friends, you tend to tell as a crazy thing that happened to you at work? Yeah, I thought about that question. It's interesting. I, I, I have a few, some may not be appropriate for this podcast, but, but the, the one that actually does stick out for me, it's kind of a funny story. When I joined, so part of my career, you know, I have a long career in the loss prevention and risk management space, not always in banking or fintech. So in my early days in, in retail, I worked for a very well-known U.S.-based, second largest DIY, uh, do-it-yourself, a home improvement company. 
And at that time, they were supporting and sponsoring a NASCAR. And I didn't really know anything about about NASCAR. But when you worked at this organization, it was part of the company's culture to be fully engaged. In fact, the car owner and car driver were very, very good to the company employees. So my first experience with NASCAR was the regional vice president that I was working for came into the office and he said, John, we're going to go to NASCAR this weekend. And I said, no, Mike, I'm, I'm really, I'm not really interested in, in NASCAR. He said, you didn't hear me. We're going to go to NASCAR this weekend and you're going to bring your wife. And the funny part of that was I said, okay, great. This is going to be interesting. So, but what they told me was that you could bring a cooler into the race. Right. So you could bring a six pack or whatever you wanted to do. Maybe in my case, it was a 12 pack into the race. So a guy who worked for me was going to the race as well. It was his first race. We got it super excited. We sat in traffic for four hours. We had picked up some beer on the way. We go, we park, we a long walk to the racetrack from the parking lot. We get there with our cooler and they said, you can't come in. Why? Because after we had beers in our cooler, we had bottles. You can't bring bottles into a racetrack. You can't bring glass into a racetrack, right? So we wasted all of that time and all of that planning. So the second half of that story, although it was at a separate track, I'll just, I just like to add this story is, again, I'm trying to learn NASCAR. It was probably my second, third race, whatever. They take us into the pits in the garage area pre-race, and they're showing off the car, right, that has the company's logo and, and images all over it. But on this particular race, there was a special sponsor, and the sponsor was SpongeBob SquarePants. Some of you may remember that. I had no idea who that was at the time. I've known children. So we get to the garage area, and, and, and where they're getting this car prepared for this NASCAR race, and there is this huge, you know, the whole car was decorated in, in SpongeBob SquarePants, and I was like, I have no idea who that person is, why would you ruin our race car and put all that stuff all over it? So just a couple of funny stories related to NASCAR. And now years later, you're a NASCAR fan? Now I am a, a NASCAR fan. I have, I won't say that I have been to every one of the larger racetracks around the country, but certainly a large share of them. I think, you know, the Daytona 500, I went to this year. I actually had the chance a couple of years ago, not NASCAR, but IndyCar, I went to the Indy 500 which is an amazing spectacle of, of racing. I think I'm like you at the very beginning, which is I don't get NASCAR. I think I'll pass. <laughs> you, you only have to go once to get hooked. Awesome. And tell us a little bit about you from a standpoint of John Merles. When you were a young kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Or maybe even now at your current age, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, the first part of that question, I think, is, you know, somewhat easy. I think I, you know, always had dreamed. I, I grew up in Boston. I always had uh, an interest in being a law enforcement officer. I took the test and got accepted to be a New York City police officer with a number of my friends. I was the only one that got called. I went through the background check. Back in those days, they actually did background checks on police officers, uh, potential police officers. And then I ultimately turned down that uh, job because I didn't want to move to New York by myself. I eventually moved to New York a year and a half later by myself, but separate story. So I think always wanting to be a law enforcement officer was something that I had, had strived to do. I'm, I'm glad in the choice I made, by the way, career choice uh, being different. What I want to do when I grow up, I think, you know, my ultimate goal right now is to rent beach chairs at South Beach in, in Miami. And I would be happy to give each of you a friends and family discount when I set up that business. Okay. 
beach chairs at the at the Miami Beach. Very nice. So following up on that a little bit, maybe share with us, how did you get here? Like what was your path that got you into this position you're currently at today? Uh, is there something you studied or is it something you just worked on to get where you're at? I think it started out for me, you know, based on my interest in, in law enforcement as I began college in a criminal justice studies. I actually began working as a retail store detective in Boston for a retail store and really grew my career through a number of different retailers in, in the U.S. I became a divisional vice president, a director of, of a number of different companies and, and really thought that was my career path. And in early 2010, through a friend and colleague who had left the traditional brick and mortar retail environment and went into an e-commerce role at eBay, which at that time eBay owned PayPal and a bunch of other companies, and he enticed me to join eBay and PayPal. And it was really the best career decision I ever made. It was something that was a total new experience and going from a brick and mortar loss prevention asset protection role into an e-commerce financial services with PayPal, classified businesses with the multiple classified businesses that they've had. I get here today, uh, this is my third startup. So I moved away from after about eight years, less than eight years at uh, eBay and PayPal. I joined a startup, uh, early, very early stage startup with less than 30 people and a financial services capacity. They are the first fintech to actually have a national charter. So I was part of that during the three plus years of, of my time there. I then was with a second fintech for a year and a half, which resulted in me moving back to New York City. And then as I like to tell people after that year and a half experience, I actually retired. And then the team here at Lilly convinced me to come out of retirement. I really tell people I actually failed at retirement. And for the last year and a half here, I've been with the Lilly team, which has been an amazing experience. They called up a tough right-hander at Lilly Bank out of retirement. You were in the bullpen. Yeah. The only requirement I had was I wasn't moving back to New York City. I, as long as they were open and, and they were to the role being remote, which brings its own challenges, of course, as I, I live in South Florida. But I traveled to both Israel, uh, where we're based, and also New York City. Very, very cool. And of course, staying in Florida lets you you know, work on the beach dream with the beach chairs and the umbrellas. Yeah, so I'm an apprentice in that business right now and working really hard and aggressively towards that. But uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing here at Lilly. Awesome. And maybe for those listening to us, John, today who may or may not be familiar with Lilly Bank, it's an overview of what Lilly Bank does, where it's headquartered, how many offices, et cetera. Yeah, happy to do that. Uh, it's an exciting product to talk about. So uh, Lilly is a almost a four-year-old company founded by both of our co-founders are from Israel, we have a team in Israel, all of our data scientists, product teams, engineering teams, growth teams, and all of our senior executives are actually, minus the CFO, are actually in Israel. The rest of the team is in New York City, minus myself, who is in South Florida. So our products, we have some uh, fantastic products that, you know, our paradigm shift has been moving from freelancers, although we certainly can continue to onboard uh, freelancers into more small, medium businesses. We offer a host of products from your traditional checking, savings, tax buckets, payments, invoicing. We have about, uh, I'll say a little less than a million customers. I won't say they're all active, but that uh, portfolio is, is, is growing. Wow. Sounds super cool. If you had to describe from a simplified perspective, how would you describe Lily Bank in one sentence? It is a agile 
fast-moving, innovative financial services product for small businesses. Awesome. Might be a little bit of a run-on sentence, but I think I got it all in there. Listen, it had lots of adjectives, so I think you you were spot on. So that's awesome. And when you think of your role as head of risks and operations for Lilly Bank, is there you know a difficult task or something that is sort of the challenge piece of your job? Yeah, I think it's always a challenge. I, I think, you know, in my current capacity of leading our risk operations organization, our focus is always on the customer experience, always on the customer journey, always on growth and in, in, in increasing our overall portfolio and, and level of engagement. So I think always in there, there's this term I use called there's some positive friction at times. And positive friction, I think, is very, very healthy, right? So I think balancing our growth and funds availability practices and procedures versus managing risk. I think for myself, Daniel, you know, I've always been intently focused around the customer. And I get some feedback, even some from my friends and colleagues in, in this space that say, are you really the head of risk operations? Or are you really ahead of customer support, right? Because it is really about the customer. And I just add one piece to that, Daniel. For us, our focus is around not just the customer, meaning the Lilly customer, but it's also about our internal customers, right? Like we have a CS team that is our frontline connection to our customers through email, phone, and chat. So they are our customer, right? It's the, I say it's the hardest job in our company, right, is to be a frontline call center uh, agent. So our job is to empower them and provide them with the right source resources to be able at first contact to resolve um, a customer inquiry, right? And we get a lot of inquiries. People aren't always calling Daniel and saying, I'm just calling to tell you how fantastic yeah. Lily is, right? Uh, yeah. So I think I think that's really important for us. And that's our focus. Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, from your career starting out in retail for so many years, you really been close to the customer for, you know, 30 years in your business, right? And so maybe not that unusual that you're in a financial service and your connection is still close to the customer. You know, it's kind of who you are. Yeah, I, I take a phrase, uh, Daniel, from an old mentor and, and, and leader that I worked with, and, and he used to use simple phrase that he said, if you're not doing something to improve the customer journey every day, you need to be doing something else somewhere else. Uh, and I really, I really talk about that, you know, with my, with my teams, right? It's not all about catching the bad guys. A very, 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 very small percentage of our, our customers, you know, have nefarious intent, right? It's, it's more about the good customers. So how do we enhance and improve that journey and ultimately drive revenue, right? We're in it to make money. Yeah, of course. And in your experience now with these three different financial startups, and maybe even thinking back to your PayPal experience, but how has the financial sector technology really evolved in the time frame that you've been in it for now, eight plus, 10 plus years, 12 plus years? Yeah, I think it's 13 plus. But I think that technology, look, as you know well, Daniel, especially in the space that you're in today, uh, technology is an ever-changing process, right? It changes every day. I can certainly tell you that, you know, having been through, as, as all of us have been through the, the pandemic of the last couple of years, it's certainly changed how businesses, especially in financial services and fintechs, operate. And we certainly saw a lot of great growth. We saw some certainly some, some, some risk challenges there. But I think 
for us, you know, I just earlier this morning was having a, a conversation with a potential vendor and we were talking about their approach, which was really rule-based, right? It was rule-based, some combination of rules, but some absolute rules versus really where we should be today, which is machine learning and AI technology, right? Sure. I can't be in a single rule-based in, in environment. I have to be able to, as I say, feed the pig, meaning the, the, the machine, and feed the machine and allow the machine to make automated and efficient decisions that reduces my human capital cost while managing, you know, in my case, managing the risk that we're challenged with at Billy. So uh, technology is everything to us because we say, hey, we're a technology company. Like we can't say Lilly Bank, quite frankly. We are a fintech offering business banking services through our sponsor bank, right? We have a sponsor bank that is the regular regulated entity that oversees what Lilly and, and, and all fintechs have the same with the exception of my first fintech, which now has their own national charter that doesn't need that sponsor bank. So it is all about technology. It is all about efficiency and, and, and automation and speed of availability of funds for the for the customer experience. And how has that fraud scheme changed in that same 13 years, like the complexity or ingenuity of the fraudsters, the bad actors, right? Because, well, it may only be a small percentage. You know, they're always they're always attacking. The attack never goes away. And how has that attack changed? I, I think they're not only attacking, and I do agree with you, uh, Daniel, they're innovating uh, very, very quickly, right? Like we see some what I'll call very basic traditional fraud schemers that have been in the financial services space forever. But then we see some much more highly sophisticated attack vectors. You know, you have phishing, you have smishing, you have romance scams, right? All those types of activities that are that are out there. May I just interrupt you and ask you what smishing is? Smishing is when you get a text that says, this is your bank, and we want you to authorize this transaction and click on this link, right? So as opposed to phishing, which is primarily done through email, smishing is your SMS texting and using the texting, right, to, to, to do that. And it's a, it's a huge challenge for all financial services and banks, and certainly at Lilly. So I think the level of sophistication and organization of attackers has grown. It has grown both in, in I think, size uh, from a scale perspective, but, but, but also in scale, meaning like the dollars that are, that are exposed, right? Like people are not getting, you think about, I'll use an example, Daniel, if you think about like synthetic identities, and, you know, 10 years ago, I, like, I, I'm not sure I knew what a synthetic identity was, and I'm not sure that it was really prevalent. But today, especially in a lending space environment, building out synthetic identities where with synthetic identity, there's no victim, right? There's no victim different than I steal your identity and then use that to open up bank accounts or buy a car or whatever, right? You're the victim because I'm using your information. So synthetic is, is a, you know, all of the industry experts that, you know, I engage and in, in that we work with as partners is, you know, that is the biggest challenge facing banks and financial services today, synthetic identities. Super cool. Well, we could probably have another conversation on the creation of synthetic identities or romance scams, which are probably interesting as well. But we'll we'll move forward and we can always come back and, and grab those. Could I ask you a question, Daniel? Yes. So does that mean that you have never won the Facebook lottery? 
<laughs> I guess that means yes. I've never went. Yeah, to yeah. There's some great stories we should talk about at another time around folks that believe that they have won the Facebook lottery and, and met the love of their life. Well, yeah, and some romance scams. You certainly have met your future ex-wife uh, in some of those. But in the Facebook scams, uh, we've had some people actually end up with what they think is the actual driver's license of the CEO and founder of Facebook. I think everybody knows his name. I won't mention it, but uh, yeah, so some funny stories. But I interrupted you. We were talking about some, <laughs> some three strategies. When you think about like the your three strategies or, or maybe limited to three strategies, but from the financial technologies company, what are they that you use to protect from these scams, right? Is there a top one, two, three? Yeah, I think it's it's all about for us, you know, our core priority is is an early detection and agile approach to identifying bad behavior, right? And and we do that through multiple and through a through a layered onboarding approach, right? So if you think about it from a standpoint of it's easier to catch you at the front door than when you're in the environment causing havoc. And I'll give you a quick, like, silly analogy. The analogy I use to sell that internally is I ask people, I say, what do you think is the job or the objective of that big, huge doorman that's standing at the front door of that club that you went to last weekend? And most people end up saying, well, his job is to break up fights. And I say, wrong. Because by the time the fight happens, you have failed, right? That bounce's job is to detect those bad guys and bad girls that are in line to get into this club that are going to come in and to cause a problem, right? So we, we take the same approach, like the front door strategy of who we are onboarding and how we manage their life cycle is the critical component of our, of our, of our strategy. Now, that leads into a longer discussion, Daniel, about uh, reducing false positives and reducing friction and, and improving uh, the user, user experience. But, you know, we have a ton of transaction monitoring rules downstream that once, you know, that new person comes on board in an effort to try to, to, to detect bad behavior early in the life cycle of that behavior and, and exit as quickly as possible. But the third and probably really the first, but the third piece is that ensuring that because the worst thing that can happen is a good Lily customer have a denied transaction, right? We call it a false positive, right? Where one of our rules has interrupted the ability of our Lily customer to be able to con construct their business. So we're really focused on the experience. We're really focused on, uh, we have our own risk appetite, which is different than some of our competitors. So it's so really focused on that experience as well. But the top strategy from a risk perspective is clearly to use, uh, you know, a multi-layered, not a canned, very customized onboarding process that identifies your level of risk at the front door. And John, when you think about like managing that risk, you believe there are new technologies that can support banks against fraudsters and protect that brand image? And if so, what do you think those technologies are? Yeah, I think that's that's right, Daniel. I think one of the things that has certainly happened over the last five years or, or maybe six, seven years is the growth of different vendors that are out there offering services to help us detect that rent. So everything from data, which data is critical for us, right? We're a very data-driven organizations and make, and make almost all of our decisions predicated off of data. So if you go back to, you know, my early time at eBay and PayPal, there were just a couple of 
third party vendors out there offering services to help, you know, complete the required KYC, know your customer or know your business onboarding flow. But today there's a bunch of them. I won't, I won't use a name, but we use one today that, you know, I, I look back when I first started in my first fintech, which, you know, is five years ago. They had like 30 employees. Today they have 600 and some employees, over a thousand customers. They're servicing eight of the top 10 financial institutions that are out there. So they were a startup when we engaged them at my first startup, right? So there, there is just a, a significant growth. There's some acquisitions and some mergers out there of some of those, but there, there is some, there are some really great products out, uh, out there that, you know, again, based on your risk appetite, your, Unit uh, unit unit cost basis of what you want to pay for the services. There there are people to help us. So we believe in a multi layered approach. We use a number of third parties to help us with both our onboarding and downstream transaction monitoring. Awesome. And when you think of like uh, I don't know, maybe it's hard to do, John. But when you think about like the myths of the people who manage risk at financial institutions, is there a myth we want to debunk? Like you guys have horns, or is there something that when we Think about you guys at the uh, risk the risk management piece. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge we all face, and my my colleagues across the industry who I le- learn from every day, of course. But but I think like the biggest myth out there is it's the risk and fraud teams that are causing churn or causing friction to the customers, and it's all about the fraud, right? Like I can say in my experience, I won't talk about Lily, but in my experience, I, I have had to have lots of discussions with product people to say. No, we can't do that. That's going to create added friction, right? So right. the myth, Daniel, is that it's, it's you know, everybody leaves your company, meaning customers, the churn and the turnover and the negative reviews. It's all because of some risk and fraud rule that you, you put in place. And, and I'll give you one quick example, Daniel, that goes back in time to my retail days. But even in my retail days at that company that I was at that, you know, I gave you the NASCAR story on. You know, we had certain rules about we didn't allow product at that point to be locked up behind cages, right? Because it wasn't self-serviceable to the customers. And that was the rule and that was the direction from our senior leaders within asset protection. But it would happen all the time. We would go and visit stores and you'd walk into an aisle, like I'll say the thermostat aisle, which was a hot item back in those days. And and the store managers decided to build this plexiglass doors and speaker and intercom system to get customer service and like we would take it down, but if you saw that, people would say, there it is, those asset protection or loss prevention guys are locking merchandise up and they're ruining our sales, right? So the right. same thing happens in fintech. Sure. Not not to say that we don't have some rules that end up creating some from friction and some churn, sometimes good churn, that does happen, but that's the biggest myth out there. So Awesome. And John, one of the folks we just had a podcast with, his name is Tarek Fahmi, who's the director of IP enforcement at the office of the U.S. State Department. He wanted to know from you, although he doesn't know you personally, but he wanted to know if there was one rule or something the U.S. government IP group could change, what would it be and why? Yeah, I think, and, and look, I think there's a lot of work happening in this space, and I, and I don't pretend to be an expert on that, but I think, you know, the work that we do with Redpoint is a simple example. I think some of the challenges that uh, whether we're doing it ourselves or using a brand protection leader like you in getting some stricter enforcement requirements around those fake websites or websites that are hosting bad product or fake 
social media advertisements that are, you know, driving fraud. Like I, I think it's yes, in some cases it's up to the company, the internal companies or the company's internal procedures and policies on what they'll take down and who they'll take it down for and how quickly they'll take it down. So I think some added enforcement and stricter regulations and guidelines will always be helpful. When you think about your career, and if you were talking to a young person, as you have many of those in your company today, but but if you were giving an advice to a young person today about I want to do what you do, or I want to do, you know, what what do you tell them? I, I tell them the same thing all the time, Daniel. Today, it's about data analytics. And if you don't have the skill set, whether it's Python skills or Tableau or Looker or SQL skills, you won't be successful, right? That wasn't an important competency as I grew up. And I always joke with people and say, you know, like my skill, I can now spell SQL. It's taken me a while, by the way, to learn how to do that. It's not a skill that I'm going to offer to the team. But for young people joining, you know, financial services and fintechs, and I have some great people on my team that are really skilled in the in the data analytics piece, because as I said before, it is all about data. So as, you know, younger folks are coming up, whether it's through education in school or, or professional experiences, Getting that knowledge and perfecting that will drive success for you in the future. Yeah, that's good advice. I still have to, I struggle with those same things, the looker, the tableaus, but thank goodness I'm surrounded by a lot of young people that have that skill set. So I'm, I'm able to say, can you give me a looker report on the following? <laughs> also because if yeah. I tried to do it, I'd be at it for three days. I do the same. I do the exact same thing, Daniel. It's funny, right? It's like, first of all, like with anything, having good team members around is what drives success, right? It's not about John Merrill's at Lilly. It's about about the team and and everybody working together. But I think you know me recognizing that uh, that that's just not a skill that John brings to the business. Like I have great ideas, at least I think they're great ideas. Uh, and conceptually, I can say the data that I'm looking for. But like you pulling that data for me is you know can be a challenge. I don't want to break anything. And we got a couple more, but when you think about a couple more questions, but when you think about your career, is there someone you think about who inspired you along the way that really gave you sort of some foundation? Yeah, it's really uh, two people. Uh, one who I think you know, I know you know, but the first one really was uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Sherman. And Jeff was the president of Bloomingdale's, where I worked earlier in my career. And Jeff had the ability. You know, you remember the old commercial, Daniel, that when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Yeah, well, yeah. that's how J- Jeff was, right? Like when he spoke, he was so articulate and gracious and gregarious. It, it was amazing. And I learned so much from Jeff from a standpoint of people engagement and building relationships. And I took a ton of respect for what I learned very early on in my career. And then the second one who might be in your list as well, Daniel, is, is John Donahoe. I think during our time when John was the chairman and CEO of eBay Inc., and today I think he's the CEO at Nike, if I'm not mistaken, being able to participate and learn and watch and spend time, not that I spend a lot of time, but some time with with John, I just think like he's just an exceptional, obviously exceptionally bright person, but but just from a leader, he was just amazing. He's very inspirational. He's very motivating. He's very direct. He's very supportive. So those were two guys that I always think of like, Hey, if I could emulate some of the things that they did, uh, it would make me a better person and a better leader. Awesome. I fully agree. Sounds like the two of them had those unique characteristics. 
So John, in our next podcast, in our next guest, who will also have some experience in the world of brand protection or IP, is there something you would like to know about them or something we could ask them on behalf of you? Date of retirement would be one for me. The stock price in two years. No, I Daniel, I am a, a, a creature of, as you know, I, I am not only a creature of habit, but, but I listen to podcasts. I read, uh, so I just want to learn. So for me, it's really about without me saying, hey, I'd love to learn. I, I you know, like here in the office, I, I multitask all day. So I may be working, but if I'm not on a, a call with somebody, I am listening to some webinar that I probably wasn't able to participate in in live. So I, I think that's something for all of us, right, to think about. And I, and I challenge my team from a development standpoint to like, how do you reflect? How do you self-help? What's your awareness? What are you doing to grow your experience and skill set and knowledge, either in your current capacity or future capacity. So I take every opportunity, whether it be with Redpoints or or anybody else out there to to listen and learn. And I pick and choose and say, well, I would never do that. Wow, that's a really great idea. Awesome. And now just to wrap up, John, I'm going to ask you four questions in 15 seconds. That's not easy for you or me to be able to n- narrow it down to 15 seconds, but yeah, we may need an extension there. Yeah, uh, let's see if we can but see if we can get an extension to 30 seconds, but we'll see what happens. Favorite music band or singer? Nickelback. Favorite book? Wisdom of the Bullfrog. I just finished reading it. It's awesome. All right. If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? A cheesesteak sub. My wife would kill me, by the way, but yes, that would be it. All right. What's your go-to resource to sort of keep up with your industry? What are you reading to to learn about? Google. Google. The Google. There you go. It's that easy. Well, John, thank you for joining us today. We learned a lot about you. Thank you for your time. And we'll come back to the some of the funny stories about the romance scams at a future date. I look forward to that. Appreciate it, Daniel. It's always a pleasure to spend time together. Well, John, that was super interesting to learn about your journey your insights in the risk management space, and changes in the financial sector. I'd like to highlight a couple key takeaways from our conversation today. Number one, with the emergence of technologies, fraudsters have also adapted their techniques to exploit vulnerabilities in the system. The attacks of fraudsters have become more sophisticated and more dangerous in today's digital landscape. They leverage technology to carry out these various types of fraudulent activities, such as phishing, smishing, and vishing, to name a few. Number two, financial institutions have turned to AI and machine learning to enhance their fraud detection and preventative measures. AI algorithms can analyze vast amounts of data and identify patterns that may indicate fraudulent activity. Machine learning algorithms can continuously learn and adapt based on new information, improving the accuracy of fraud detection over time. Well, that's it for us today. If you've liked what you've heard, check out our next inspiring story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.